Chapter 11 It took me a while to get over the eggs. Very thoroughly, I washed my hands and face in the stream, swilling water in my mouth, spitting it out and making guilty yuck sounds. It felt like I'd eaten clumps of phlegm with different consistencies, mostly soft, some of it more chewy. I didn't know who I was, dressed so ridiculously in a suit, but I could see who I might become, given much more of this existence. Someone hard and pragmatic, willing to do anything to prolong his survival. I could already feel the stubble on my face. I wondered if I would end up having to wear pelts and furs. In the months to come, would I grow long, matted hair and have a beard down to my stomach? With the peculiar sense that I didn't actually like beards, I picked up two rocks and chinked them together, wondering if I could make them spark. For a while, I stayed crouched near the fallen nest, hoping I wouldn't vomit. Rather than staving my hunger, the eggs made me more hungry. I was even prepared to climb one of the chestnuts to see if there were any more eggs there. Despite my revulsion at eating them, I might have proceeded with this plan were it not for a spell of dizziness as I rose to my feet. I pictured myself falling out of the tree, breaking a bone, or twisting an ankle. It was enough to make me reconsider, and the dizziness also brought back to me, with a pronounced flutter, a sense of the precipice I was on. It was getting to the end of my first day. To turn my mind from complaint and worry to something more useful, I tried the trick of mentally acknowledging anything I could be remotely thankful for. Anything at all, I said to myself. The eggs, for instance. I'd found a source of protein and had plenty of water in the stream to wash it down with. It was correct, I felt, to identify and build on achievements. I'd struggled up a mountain for most of the day. As long as I didn't fall over with cramps in the next few minutes, I could be certain of reaching an objective. For that matter, I could say I had already reached it. I looked back at the tree line behind and below me. The evening light was really quite extraordinary, an azure sky without a cloud or a jet trail in it. The sun was setting behind me on the far side of the mountain, casting its last rays through the rocky crevices higher up. It accentuated the shades of green over the forest below, rolling down in curved, ever-darkening lines like stepping stones all the way to the horizon. I'd climbed to some height, and the breezes were stronger in this exposed spot. It kept me cool, as well as preventing any more gnats and things hovering around my head, taking nips out of me. That alone was a crucial benefit, and I made an effort to be glad of it. Another fifteen or twenty meters climb, and I would arrive at the arching cedars that had been such a helpful focus for the past hour or so. It did worry me, though, to see how unending the forest was, and the range of peaks stretching east and west behind me, with no sign of humans and the daylight almost spent. It was as beautiful as it was awful. I hung my head, 
I knew I would have to face myself sooner or later and think it might have been the wrong decision to go up the mountain. It was an understandable error, I suppose. I'd sought the advantage of an overview. I thought that by being higher up, I would be able to provide myself with a map of where to go next. But there was nowhere to go. That was the sum of the intelligence I'd gained after a whole day's climbing. There were no plumes of smoke that might indicate human habitation, no roads or villages in the valley below, nor any cuts in the forest that might have been loggers' tracks. I'd assumed there must be some kind of organized tree felling going on. Now it seemed I must have been mistaken. It felt more and more like the kind of forest that doesn't exist anymore. I stayed rooted to the spot, to an opening of panic that would swallow me up if I didn't control it. I could feel myself going. All day I'd managed to avoid this, but at that moment I couldn't help losing all sense of balance and proportion. I made an anguished sound I didn't know I could make, and squeezed my fists, raising them, stamping my feet, doing a turn, stamping again. I remembered doing something similar as a child. Somewhere in my brain, I knew I'd felt this same sense of loss. My parents were part of this memory. We were in a street somewhere foreign, walking along. It was a busy street of shops, and the legs of all the people were like a forest around me. It must have been a hot day too. I'd been holding my mother's hand, but it was too sweaty to hold hands, so I must have let go. My mother had a red blouse on. My father was in a blue short-sleeved shirt. One minute we were ambling along, the next thing I knew, I was on my own. I looked up and down. I could already feel how devastated I was going to be. I ran into a coffee house, hoping that's where they'd gone. I remember pushing my way in and searching for them, ready to shriek. The room was smoky. There was no red blouse, no blue shirt. There could have been no greater anguish. I ran out looking for them again, dodging around, trying to see through everyone's legs. Colors surrounded me, a bright wash of pinks and yellows sparkling through my tears, but not the right blue and not the right red. How I hollered then. It was the memory of this anguish that brought me to my senses. I was panting, standing not far from the fallen nest, and could still smell the eggs on my hands and face. It was a faintly sulfurous smell. My memory was alive but fading. I was aware of it being a memory as well. It was fascinating and provoked in me a sense of sadness a kind of pity for the boy who thought for a moment that the world had been pulled from under his feet. I was frustrated that I couldn't recall anything else, apart from the events of my day in the forest, which I had no trouble recalling. Except for this single memory, waking up under a boulder in a suit, deciding to climb the mountain, finding a stream on the way, and eating some eggs, was just about all I knew about myself. I shook my head and tried to think of something appropriate or useful to do. It was hard to think of anything. 
My jacket was scrunched into a heap between rocks by the stream. I must have thrown it there. The left sleeve had soaked up a fair bit of water. I put it on anyway, straightening the lapels and pulling the cuffs down. I unzipped my trousers and relieved myself at the edge of the stream. In all of this, I was trying to appear normal and unhurried. I tucked my shirt in. I checked that the knot on my tie was central between the collar wings of my shirt. When I was quite satisfied, I adjusted my posture, making myself stand taller, holding my head high and slightly to one side, before walking on with an air of contemplation. I thought it best to consider the craziest idea I had about all of this. The idea that I'd been transported back in time to a virgin forest. It might have gone some way towards explaining my memory loss. I theorized, if it was possible to go back in time, it was also possible that in undergoing such an unnatural transition, a person would erase much of who they were, simply because who they were would be in the future. To go back in time before I existed might therefore have rendered my experience of the future meaningless. I shook my head involuntarily. Against the onset of these thoughts, I balanced the fact that I had already seen how my history was somehow hidden, but not obliterated. And what about the facts? The tree stump? I had sat on a stump that had been cut with what almost certainly was a modern tool. I needed to focus on that splendid discovery. I was unprepared for a night in nature, but as it was a mild time of year, I could at least still hope that other modern humans were not far off. If I kept myself in good condition, I would eventually be rescued and taken to a hospital where they could get on with the business of finding out who I was. I had just about managed to put myself at ease when I heard a cascade of small rocks and rubble and saw something move in the last glimpse of sunlight. A person was standing by the cedars, looking down at me. I called out. I raised my arm and took quick steps. But the person turned and ran. I shouted, Please! You must wait! They were too nimble, though. I couldn't tell if I was looking at a male or a female. A shaft of sunlight had obscured my view. There was no way I could catch up. Whoever it was, the person seemed to me to be young. My shoes were beyond walking in, let alone giving chase. I shouted, Come back! By then, though, whoever it was had run up towards the setting sun and disappeared among the high rocks. Chapter 12 It made sense that there should be caves in the craggy precipices, running like a spine, north and south above the forest. I wasn't sure anymore if I'd seen somebody or not. It was out of despair that I followed in the direction I thought they'd gone in. I'd almost convinced myself that I'd seen an apparition, brought on by stress and starvation. I relied on the possibility that there might be a cave somewhere in this pile of rubble, with a good vantage, which could serve as a shelter from the night ahead, 
somewhere safe for me to hide and rest, no matter what I'd seen. Of all the things to remember, I had to come up with the worst one. The memory of being abandoned as a child still worked on my nerves as I climbed upwards, riding me like a malicious being I couldn't see, no matter how quickly I turned to face it. So far, this had been my only true recollection, but I was anxious not to recall it anymore. I even had the impression someone was doing this to me on purpose. The whole situation seemed as if it was being inflicted on me. It was personal, an attack on me personally, devised by an enemy I would never be able to see or know. I shouted at my enemy out loud. Show yourself, you bastard! I can see what you're doing. As if my being in this situation, at such a total disadvantage, could actually have been a conspiracy devised for me by someone morbid and twisted. This outlandish fantasy was mindlessly rehearsed every few minutes as I scrambled over the rocks. But I managed to stay focused on the new task of finding a cave to sleep in. It felt necessary to produce well-defined, short-term goals like this. Clearly, some part of me was able to remain neutral, constantly assessing my prospects and working out how best to proceed. Whatever the sense of outrage in me was, I used it as fuel to press ahead, despite my protesting legs and the ever-excruciating jolts in my right arm. It became cooler as daylight faded. I found myself savoring the warmer currents of air still trailing in the dusk. I was glad I'd kept hold of my jacket through the heat of the day. It permitted of a tiny victory to be able to slip it on again, despite its damp sleeves and the fact that it was torn almost to shreds. It had been my plan all along. I had predicted that it would get colder later on and that I would need to wear my jacket again. A victory like this, however slight, was something to be kindled until it felt life-affirming. Just the feeling that I could win at something was in itself vitally important. I searched my pockets and found I still had the spare buttons for the jacket. Unaccountably, that made me happy as well. Not happy, but a degree or two happier. As I scaled those treacherous faces to get wherever I was going, Grabbing at stones for support, I also had to grab at anything that might be mentally uplifting. Bats swirled out from behind the rock towers above me into the dusk. Lifting myself through the narrowest passages along ledges lined with stunted trees, hauling myself up on tufts of grass that could come away in my hands if I wasn't too careful, the swift Razor turns of those bats seemed to me to be an extension of the malevolence of the place. Every shadow in the contours and crags could have been a place to sleep in, but also a shape of torment placed there to ridicule me. I used pebbles and stones to find out more, throwing them at the darker patches before making any effort to investigate. Some of the stones disappeared into holes I judged too small to sleep in. One, though, went in without a sound. The cave was about three meters above me, 
along a slope. It seemed a good prospect. The next stone I threw rebounded off a wall. Just by the echo, I knew it would be big enough. I decided to risk a section of more hazardous climbing. Worried by the rapid descent of night at that stage, I went as quickly as I could. The thought of having to sleep in the open, in such a hostile place, was unbearable. Even the few stars, already visible, were like twinkles in an unfriendly eye. As I climbed towards my new destination, I imagined a cardboard box I could pack every negative thought into. Each ruinous doubt that occurred to me could be sealed into that box. Of course, there was a lot to pack in. I'd given myself the objective of finding out where I was, only to discover that I was in some huge natural wilderness with nothing for company but visions of a mysterious, rather short person. That went straight into the box. I didn't know who I was, but dressed as I was, I had no reason to believe I might be an experienced climber. That went into the box as well. Halfway up the rock face, I realized I couldn't get down again. I'd made movement scaling it that didn't seem possible to do in reverse. That went into the box, but it was such a big obstacle it almost didn't fit. What if there weren't any secure footholds further up? What if I couldn't finish this climb? What if my next movement was the last thing I did? I only just managed to shove these questions under the lid and slam it down. Fearing for my life, I sealed my imaginary box with packing tape and sent it to a large warehouse where there were millions of other similar boxes stored on rows of shelves. I deposited mine there to be forgotten for as long as possible. I knew that if I looked into the contents of my box ever again, I would be dead. At the very end of the climb, I encountered more seemingly insurmountable problems. I had to reach dangerously far with my right arm in order to curl my fingertips over a small jutting rock higher up. The pain this caused me had to be ignored. There was no place for it. The rock trembled as I held on to it. It began to loosen. I had to be so positive about the maneuver I was intending, there could be no room for anything else. It had to be pure and graceful. I threw my right leg out. My foot landed somewhere hard and I pushed upwards, catching the branch of a small tree with my left hand. As far as I could tell, my body was being tugged in opposite directions. I must have looked like the letter X plastered over the rock side, with only centimeters to go before I reached safety or fell. The tree I was clutching didn't feel like it could take any more weight. My hand slipped back along a branch until the whole tree was bent over. I could feel the stickiness between my fingers and smell the fresh sap. Some of the needles were gouging my palm, urging me to let go. The words in my head were like sirens. Give up and fall. The whole situation I was in told me that this would be the most accessible solution to all of my problems. But I didn't give up. 
and for the rest of my journey I would cling to this notion as tightly as I clung to that small tree. My inclination to win through made me grab at the stump and branches with both hands, heaving upwards with a cry of agony, mingling with all the rage I could muster. I managed to pull myself onto the ledge. It's a good thing I got there in such a furious frame of mind, because there was a surprise in store for me. I hadn't even finished yelling before I could hear a stir in the darkness, making its own confused noises. It leapt onto the ledge in front of me. It reared up, showering spit, a big white goat that honked at me and bounded away into the fuzzy lines of diminishing light. I admit... I cried then. I was on my knees anyway. I thought I might as well have a good cry. It wasn't just the fear or the pain or the hunger. I was crying over the good things too. Over the relief, like a warm flood coursing through me, that I was alive despite what was happening. I'd come to the end of the first day in this most bizarre day of my existence, and I was getting to know something about myself. I had an impetuous streak I was sure had taken me in the wrong direction more than once. Yet, I seemed to be solid and resourceful when in jeopardy. There was a stubbornness I was glad of. In the back of my mind, some curious back-of-my-mind zone that remained forever detached, I queried why I hadn't come across the person I'd most definitely seen. I was in the right vicinity, and yet... Apart from one disgruntled goat, there was no sign of life anywhere. There was no one but me, fragmenting. Although my hands were cut and bleeding, I was more concerned for my arm now. I took my jacket off. I unbuttoned my shirt and checked around the sore area for lumps or bruising. There was nothing visibly wrong. I knew that's how it would be but I felt I had to check. What I could feel there was a constant burning, like a slow trickle of scalding water being applied to the muscles just below my shoulder. I stared at it and prodded it, but there was nothing else I could do. Eventually, I crawled into the mouth of the cave, where I was greeted with the rich smells of goat and confinement. The floor, I discovered, was soft with dung, I had no qualms about scooping some into a mattress shape to lie on. I rolled my jacket into a bundle to use as a pillow. For a moment I did wonder if goat dung might be nutritious, but dismissed the idea of eating any before the query could be articulated. For what seemed like hours I lay awake, going over the events of the day. 